Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. A quick note before we start this episode. In this episode, we do talk about suicide. If you are struggling, please reach out for help. You can call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 988. They are available 24-7 and know there is a path forward. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Addicted Mind Podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland. I'm your host. And today we have a wonderful guest, Robert Hilliker. Robert is driven by a deep commitment to serve others and is passionate about the subject of hope and despair in clinical treatment. And this is the topic we're going to get into. He has over 20 years in the field of addiction and mental health, encompassing private practice, clinical supervision, and the creation and management of clinical programming and the co-founding of the Lovett Center, the Prairie Recovery Center, and their parent company, Ethos Behavioral Health Group. Today, we're going to talk about hope and despair. And what I really loved about this conversation is really breaking down the elements of what is hope and how does hope and despair work together in clinical treatment as well as recovery. So I hope you get a lot out of this episode. I really enjoyed this conversation a lot with Robert. And don't forget, if you're getting a lot out of the Addicted Mind podcast, Please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. That really does help the podcast get found, and I really appreciate it. I do read them, and they mean a lot to me. And if you want to continue the conversation online, join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind Podcast and click join. All right, everyone, let's start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind Podcast. My guest is Robert Hilliker. And Robert, I'm just going to have you jump in and 
tell us a little bit about yourself? I know we just talked earlier, right before we yeah, started recording, yeah. that we're going to we're going to focus on the topic of hope and despair in recovery. Mm -hmm. But let's get to know you a little bit first and jump sure. in there. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Really glad to be here and uh, to have the time with you and your listeners. So I'm Dr. Robert Hilliker. I am uh, a person in long-term recovery. That's a great place to start. I always talk about the idea that I came by this work honestly as a patient first. And I think that's an important part of what informs my work as a therapist and as a clinician is that I really understand what it's like to be on the other side of seeking support. Yeah. And continue to be plugged into that. And I think it informs a lot of how I approach care. So, uh, and I think that's a lot of what I'm trying to talk about. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your story so we can yeah. kind of hear how you got help and support and then how that helps you help others? Yeah, absolutely. So like so many people that work in kind of the substance use and addiction world, like, you know, I, I, as I said, come by the work honestly as a patient first. And so what that looked like was I'm actually the third generation of my family in long-term recovery. Wow. So I come from a long line of people who struggled with addiction. You know, there is very much a genetic component to this. Um, there's all sorts of environmental factors and stressors that, you know, induce the onset of illness. But um, there's there's certainly this, uh, you know, genetic component. And, and in my family system, it's a multi-generational problem that we've been tackling for really for several generations. So I happen to be lucky enough to be the third generation of my family in recovery. So there were a lot of people that were pioneers before me that sort of led the way into what this could look like. And as a function of that, I was intervened on very early in the course of my life and very early in the course of my kind of addiction addiction trajectory, right. such that it's allowed me to have really the, the entirety of my adult life lived in a, in a process of, of recovery and of you know, continuous sobriety. So I'm really glad for that. Yeah. So you were lucky. I mean, I think that kind of actually mirrors a little bit of my story too, because I yeah. went into rehab when I was like 17 years old and I, it was hard. 13. 13. All right. <laughs> so even earlier, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I think like what you're yeah. saying, it, it, it's led me to have a life built around intention a little bit more. Yes. And exposure to the inner work that has helped me build the life that I that I have today. So right. I kind of feel the same way. I think I can relate to that a lot. And and I'll tell you in that same vein, you know, yes, entirely. Everything you said I could agree with in that I've had a, a much more kind of intentional way of engaging adulthood. And I feel like that sort of fast tracked, like the midlife crisis sort of was more like a quarter life crisis that allowed me to sort of do some work later yeah. that I'm really, I'm really grateful for because, you know, I think we get, you know, one shot at it in this body, in this form, in this consciousness, however you think about it. And so I think the earlier the intervention, the better. And 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 that's why I'm always encouraging people like this, this, you don't have to wait till it gets really bad. You can do preventative work. And one of the best things I learned early in my career was that if we intervene early in the life of, of a child or adolescent, you know, we can fundamentally change the trajectory of this whole thing for them by providing a meaningful community of support. And so that was my story is I got plugged into a meaningful community of support. You know, Houston's a wonderful place for young people to get sober because there's all sorts of adolescent um, programming and support in e even more so than a lot of other big metro cities in the United States. And so I had this really unique and I think wonderful opportunity at early recovery that just stuck. And I think in part it stuck because of the people that came before me that did a lot of the groundwork 
and yeah. prepared and kind of prepared a foundation. And then I think it stuck because I had a really connected and meaningful community. And so in some ways that's, that has been kind of the principal idea that's organized a lot of how I built our practice and our, our business. We have a, you know, ethos behavioral health group is a mid-sized behavioral health company and we have several different levels of care and all that. And all of that's really been kind of predicated on and informed by these early experiences that both myself and one of my partners, Will uh, Davis also had in terms of just, you know, we both sobered up at relatively young ages, mine quite young and got plugged in in a way that, that, you know, fundamentally changed the trajectory of our, of our adult lives. So. Yeah. And, and being able to have that community and learning that early on in your life, I yeah. think is just incredibly profound. And I feel it's, it's interesting because I, I feel a lot the, the same way. I feel kind of blessed that I had those experiences, although difficult to, to walk through. So let's talk about, you know, with this and with community comes that dichotomy of hope and despair. And that's such a big component mm -hmm. of recovery. And I know community definitely helps manage those two things. Yeah. So I think it, it might be good to just zoom out and, and even start with a, a sort of operational definition for that, because I think for a lot of people, they hear the word hope and they think they know what it means. But in this, we sort of operationalize the definition to really kind of understand, like, what is it? You know, it's not rainbows and kittens and puppies. It's actually something that's a bit grittier and it's more connected to our relationship to despair. And it's really born out of that struggle that we're in. And so I was lucky enough to do, you know, to be introduced to this topic really early on. It was actually when I was, when I was a fellow, a postgraduate fellow at Menninger, the Menninger Clinic, I was introduced to Carl Menninger's work and read a lot of his early work where he was one of the few people who was talking about hope explicitly as a factor in treatment. Wow. And, and as a function of that, I, I found protégés that came after him, people that had studied under Carl Menninger that went on to study hope, one of them being a guy named Snyder, uh, C.R. Snyder. And Who's, who's since passed away, but he developed some really compelling research on hope. And and essentially this, and, and this helps sort of lay the groundwork for what we're talking about. What he essentially said was hope consists of meaningful goals, creative pathways forward, and a meaningful sense of personal agency, which is to say a belief in your ability to affect change in your own life. And the absence of those three things, when you do not have goals and you do not have pathways and you do not have personal agency, you are, in fact, hopeless. Wow, and I like that. I I love that you broke that down into those three components. Because yeah. once you just said that, it's like, yeah, this this defines hope. If you don't have any of these elements, mm -hmm. yeah, you, I if you can't if you don't have goals, you don't have a way, and you don't have you don't believe you can do it, you're hopeless. Correct. And that's right. that's when people really get into a very dark space. Well, and, and, and that is the single greatest predictor for the completion of suicide. So if you think yeah. about who kills themselves, it's not people who think about dying, right? Suicidal ideation is not the, the best predictor of who completes suicide. Hopelessness is the single yeah. greatest predictive factor for who completes suicide. And, and, and the reason being is because if you don't have goals and you don't have a path forward and you don't believe that you could, you can't yeah. even imagine that, the possibility of that, then your final act of personal agency 
is to end it. Yeah, that, 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 that makes, you, makes you total sense. You actually have a sense of, of power and control in, in that that otherwise feels completely undermined by the other facets of your life. Yeah, and I think sometimes it's really hard to understand if you haven't been into that darkness before. It's yeah. hard to understand that. But when you start to look at that from this perspective, that makes sense for someone in that situation where they they don't have any of these three elements to, right. to move on. But that's then right. at the same time, I feel like, you know, that's why you're here, right? Is to give mm -hmm. that hope to someone else to 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 create these things for mm -hmm. them. So let's let's yeah. talk about that. Yeah. So, so there's a couple of things that are really interesting. So if you think about, you know, kind of what, I, what I will call traditional kind of old school chemical dependency treatment, right. And, and right. Use or chemical dependency, cause that's sort of where we would couch that old school CD work, right. Is basically, Hey, take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth, come all the way in, sit all the way down and, and you take direction and let the grown ups talk. Right. Yep. Right? Old school. Old school, school treatment. That's yep. old school I, treatment. I know that. I know that old school yeah, treatment. I, I, look, I, I know. And and for people with a chip on their shoulder and, and everything else, that, that, that there, there's, a, there's a time and a place for that, I suppose. But for the most part, what that does in my, in my estimation and in my experience clinically is it undermines the one facet that we need most to affect long-term and sustained recovery, which is personal agency. So if I wanted to rob someone of personal agency, I just encourage them to stay in their addiction. I wouldn't need to bring them into treatment and then break them down and shame them and make them feel bad about themselves. Right. Like, you know, the, your best thinking got you here. What a, what a, what a not great thing to say to people, you know? Um, totally I, I, agree with that. Yeah. And, and yet that was common practice. You know, when I sobered up 24 years ago, that was you know, that, that was that the way was, it was. Yeah, that was the way it was. And and that was the way that, it, you know, and, and there are still people who would say, you know, who, who would who would push on this with me and say, Robert, you've got it all wrong. And so we end up often with patients who have tried all those treatments. And they're like most people that are in that sort of that that mean of the national average which is about nine episodes of care before they actually sustain change. And so they're somewhere in that kind of, you know, they they've as a function of seeking help. They have less hope than when they started because that, each that makes total failed, sense. Yeah. It undermines their capacity about their belief to affect change in their life. It undermines their personal agency because they think they've done something wrong. So we blame the patient when the treatment doesn't work. Can you imagine if, you know, God forbid you had cancer and you went to an oncologist and the chemotherapy didn't work effectively in its first round and the oncologist said, well, I guess you just didn't want it bad enough. I would see that all the time in my early work in this field. Yeah. And it always felt very off to me. Like mm -hmm. I, I didn't understand it where the client wouldn't be successful. And instead of asking the question of, okay, how could we have helped them more? How could we have done, how could we have supported them or how could we have changed our treatment? The easy thing to go to was, well, they didn't want it bad enough. And right. I, I've never met someone in addiction that didn't want it bad enough. I like everybody wants out. Addiction right is hard. It's painful. Right. It's right up there with those crazy things that people say, like, like when people who don't understand addiction say that 
you know, well, if they just, if the alcoholic had willpower and I always say like, have you met an alcoholic? They are the most willful people you've ever met in your life. Like this is not an right. issue. Do they have willpower or not? Right. This is we're we're, we're, you're missing the boat entirely. And I think we miss the boat a lot in traditional forms of care. And so what we try to do in our approach to care is really have hope be a central factor as a technical aspect of the treatment that we're actually intervening with hope. And I'll, and I'll talk about that for a second and why that's important and structurally how we do that, because I think that could be helpful to people who are listening. So first and foremost, it's important to understand that, that hope has to become an explicit, not an implicit part of the care. We need mm-hmm. to use the word hope. We need to talk about hope. We're actively doing research with the University of Alberta. We're doing human, human subject research right now with the University of Alberta studying this multidimensional hope scale that Dr. Uh, Denise Larson put together. She's amazing. She's done a lot of really great work in the space of looking at the clinical implications of u- using hope in treatment. And there's another researcher out there, Kathy Weingarten, who I often will reference in, in my stuff as well, who has the concept of reasonable hope, which is another important concept we could probably talk about. Oh, I'd love to talk about that too. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I like I to get that granular because yeah, I think it's important. Yeah, yeah. This isn't so, about blind hope. You know, this no, isn't just like hope. No, 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 no. There's, but, there's an intention here. Right, because that's confounding hoping and wishing. And yeah. those are different things. And we also want to, we also want to differentiate, you know, operationally between hope and optimism. Optimism is is a is a cognitive construct that's aimed at our perception of a positive outcome in some future scenario, right? That's optimism, that something positive will happen in the near future or or thereabouts. Hope is actually not a cognitive construct, but a relational one. Ah, right. So this is what Weingarten talks about in her work that's so profound. Is she says we do hope. So hope is relational. It's something we do right? It's a verb, right? And she would also say it's, it seeks goals and pathways and it can bear the weight of despair. We hope together. Yeah. We do hope is what she says, but yeah, we hope together. Absolutely. We do. We do hope really speaks to the idea that it's also a verb. So this is, this is, comes from a, um, an article that came out in the, or it was a publication, I think in it was first published in 2010 and the researchers Weingarten. And I've, I've talked to her, I think once we had a zoom uh, during COVID, which was, which was nice to kind of just for me, I, I, I really just wanted to catch up with her and thank her for this her contribution to, yeah. the, you know, to my understanding about hope. It's been so helpful. So I, I was starting to say, how, how do we structure this in treatment? And why is that important? So first of all, you know, and I think these concepts from Weingarten help inform what it is that we do. So hope needs to be an explicit part of the treatment. It needs to be something that's thought of as a relational process. And it needs to be something that we, we, we kind of have as a foundational element, as a technical element of care. So when, and, and, and let me zoom out one more time before I get into that and say, you know, many, many people are, are now pretty familiar with the idea of common factors theory. I, I don't know if people that have come before me on the show have talked about it or not, but common factors theory is this idea, um, for those that are unfamiliar with it, it's, you know, these big, really big meta-analyses of meta-analyses at this point that say, okay, across all the different modalities, all the approaches to care, all the different theoretical traditions that we have in psychotherapy, what works about therapy? What really works? What are, what, what are the common factors that work regardless of your approach to care? And they come up with four really important factors. The first of which is 15% of therapeutic change is accounted for by technique. 
what the therapist actually says or does, which for some right. people is kind of shocking. Like, yeah, I know only 15% does. is the, is the it's, modality, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's uh, the technical aspects of treatment is actually relatively small. However, an equal 15% can be accounted for by hope, expectancy, and placebo. So people's expectant belief that things will change yep. and their capacity to cultivate hope is equivalent to everything else that's said and done in the treatment. That fascinated me. When I first encountered that, it was like, why are we not talking about hope all the time with patients? Because, yeah. and, and what's the what's the cost? What's the risk of of introducing that, right? There's nothing. It, it costs nothing. And to not have it is to leave out about 15% of change. So we can double the technical efficiency of our care by making hope one of the technical aspects of treatment. So just to clarify, to yeah. make sure I really understand yeah. this, it's yeah. that the, the person who comes in to get help, yes. it's their, it's, it's their, some of their belief in the process. And this this idea that hope is there, that change is possible, that they have some like cultivating just that piece, regardless of what kind of therapeutic modality you're using, right. having that piece increases the likelihood of a positive outcome yes. in, a, in, in anybody's effort to make change and, and get help. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And yeah. Yeah. So, so we've got, now we've got 30% of change accounted for. So the next 30% tranche in, in one variable is the therapeutic relationship. Yes. And again, if we're thinking about hope as a relational construct, then hope also becomes foundational and impacting the 30% of change that comes from the relationship you and I cultivate together. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Right. That that bond between the helper and, and the one person being helped. Correct. And that, that just having that good relationship, feeling safe feeling supported right. is the next yeah. chunk that will predict right. change. Right. So now we've accounted for 60% and it leaves one variable that accounts for 40% of change. And that's what are, is thought of as extra therapeutic support. So how do we eliminate barriers to support? What Weingarten in her research calls obstructions to love. How do we remove obstructions to love outside of the treatment? and encourage supportive resource. So that's where, you know, 40% of change is going to come from getting plugged into a recovery community, whether it's 12 step or Dharma recovery or smart recovery or celebrate recovery, whatever your sort of orientation to a recovery community, getting plugged into community is really the secret sauce. It's, it's having relationships that are meaningful and, and yeah. connected that matters more than the individual approach. Now, I, I happen to pursue the kind of 12-step model for recovery. That was what was available to me. And it worked well, and it still works. And I love that approach. But I'm also not one to say, and that needs to be your approach, because it worked for me. Right. <laughs> right? Everybody's going to find their own path. But, but that's another thing that people encounter in a lot of traditional forms of treatment is, this worked for me, therefore it must work for you. And if it doesn't work for you, then it's because you didn't do it right. 
Yeah. Here, and then put all the blame on them. And then, it yeah. It's, it's so it, terrible. Yeah. And it keeps people, people stuck. And, and then yeah. once again, it, it actually pulls that hope away because I, yeah. I'm, I don't, I can't do it. I don't have agency. I, there's no, there's no right. path for me, right. which gets into that other piece of despair. Yeah. And then I have, I have young people. I had a, I had a young guy in treatment with us recently who, you know, once he got through medical detox and was in residential care with us, he said, you know, he introduced himself to the group as a chronic relapser. Now this is like his fifth, fifth episode of care, right? Total. And he's like in his early twenties. And I said, Hey, let me stop you there. Chronic relapser insinuates that you've sort of over-identified with this idea of relapse. And the reality is that you're like one standard deviation below the mean on like what it takes to get this. Right. Yeah. So if nine is sort of a national average at five, you're like, you're like, I, I was like, honestly, you're kind of not even to par yet. <laughs> like we're yeah, not you're even, not even there. And no, and pulling that I, shifting that identity. Yes. Yeah. And 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 he was able to laugh at himself and kind of go like, wow, that's like an, a really important reframe for me to like understand that like I'm not some hopeless alcoholic who doesn't get it. I'm just a person on a journey that, you know, isn't even really to the point where most people, where, where the vast majority of people, you know, have it kind of click for them. And that's a good like hope intervention, by the way. That's, yeah, that's how totally. when say we're doing hope. That's what I'm talking about. I want him to have hope about his recovery, not over-identify with this role of being a quote-unquote chronic relapser, which in fact he wasn't. And then I'm going to add this to yeah. this is that there he is talking to you in community. Yes. And getting, you know, that's that loving, supportive community that says, hey, let me reframe this for you. Yes. And we need that, right? I have yeah. the saying, we heal through the eyes of others. Mm -hmm. And we need that. And I think that's a great example of what you were just talking about, because now he has this community that says, hey, I'm going to instill hope in you. I'm going to yes. reframe this for you. I'm going yes. to help you do that, mm -hmm. which I, I love. I think it's just, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I hope because we hope. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's contagious. I feel like it's yeah. contagious. When you get in a community of, of hopeful people, yeah. you, you pick that hopefulness up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we should talk to the shadow side of hope as well, which is, you know, hope, I think largely when deployed properly is, is, you know, confers a certain advantage to people and it's effective and it's helpful and it's adaptive. There are circumstances in which hope, a sort of perversion of the idea of hope becomes a defense against reality. Yeah. And, and that's where the reasonable hope concept is really helpful to say, no, 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 you're still facing the possibility that this felony conviction will put you in jail for a really long time. That yeah. hope is not that is not being delusional about the fact that you face this consequence that's associated with your drinking. Okay. And being able to balance those two things. It's not uh, blind yeah, optimism. Hope. Right. Exactly. A reasonable hope in this is that when you have to face the consequence of your addiction, that you trust in your capacity to stay sober, even in the midst of that. Yeah. That would be a reasonable hope for us. It's not, it's not defending against the reality of what is. So we don't want to use hope defensively. We want to use it adaptively. And, and that's one of the things that we try to differentiate between as well. The other piece that we were starting to kind of go down the path of is 
the other factors of extra therapeutic support, I just wanted to name those really quickly. We talked about recovery community, but it could also be a faith community for people. It can also be, you know, we've seen this, this, you know, through CrossFit and other approaches to, to exercise, exercise communities that are really supportive, really helpful, really connected and uh, working towards like, you know, positive goals with positive self-image and meaningful relationships to each other. So I, and I think we need to have all of those. I think we need to have lots of intersecting and overlapping communities where we have a sense of belonging and that kind of further grounds us in, in protective factors around hope. Because even if some things aren't working, we have other things that are in other places to sort of lean on for that extra therapeutic support. And that's something you build over time. You know, we say about this communities that, you know, go get a community. Those don't just happen. No, no. They have to be built and cultivated mm-hmm. and nurtured and grown. Mm-hmm. Just make that, mm-hmm. that this is a process, but there's a, you know, going, instilling hope, there's a pathway towards that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so this is what we, this is how we've structured it sort of in our treatment. And then, you know, before we talk to you, you asked a little bit about our approach to care. So we, we, we can talk about that because I think it has implications that could be helpful to people. So let's just take our residential environment because it's where it's the most highly structured in our process. So the whole clinical arc of our treatment week, right? And really the the larger arc for treatment in general is we talk about the restoration of hope being our first goal and then the transformation of self, right? That people, you know, Hannah Levinson says, you know, we don't need an explanation. We need an experience. Right. And, and, and a lot of what treatment has become is us explaining to people how addiction works in the brain. And so far I have a lot of people that come to treatment after been having been a lot of places and they can teach the lecture on addiction in the brain and it, it, it to date has not helped them not use. So there's no amount of explaining it that will help us. We have to have an experience that transforms us. So the restoration of hope, the transformation of the self and the integration of skills over time. It's the time piece that you're speaking to the integration of skills right. over time. And a lot of times what people do is they don't have a lot of hope restored they get a lot of explanation, but not a transformative experience. And then they don't give themselves a long enough runway to really grow into the skills that are necessary. And then when they fail, because they have none of those things, because the treatment didn't structure any of those things, then they're blamed for that failing. Yeah. Right. And then the cycle Which, continues. And the cycle continues. And and so that's why we see, I, I think it's one of the main contributing factors to such high rates of relapse and recidivism in, in our field. So, so let me just clarify yeah. that. So the, these elements, it's like that you you have that educational experience, but that's that's the education itself just really isn't enough. You you have to do it with people, and you have to have the the change experience with mm-hmm. others. You have to feel it in your body. Yeah, it's bigger than just learning about it. I mean, most of right. us know the right things to do anyway. You know, we know like, don't eat that second bowl of ice cream, but yet here we do, right? Right. We know the right things to do most of the time. And so that's not really where the change comes from. It comes from this experiential experience. I mean, you need knowledge to understand it, but 
Yeah. You need, yeah, you need some knowledge to understand what it is that's happening. But a lot of times what I actually want to do is give people a transformative experience and then help them understand what it is that they've experienced so that they can translate yeah. the experience that's happened to them and metabolize it and, and internalize it and carry it forward with them. So in other words, and that this is going to take time, like, the, yeah. and then the, like yeah. you said, the runway, like yeah. You, you, this, yeah. to, to get this integrated into your brain, your being, it, it takes time for it to happen. Yeah. We know that improved outcomes, you know, improved long-term outcomes come when we can see people through the first year of their recovery journey. Right. Yeah. And and yeah. most people go to 28-day treatment, which was sort of a construct of the military industrial complex, right? That on the 29th yeah. day, you're AWOL. So you need to report for duty. So there's just no data to support how we've structured care. And so part of what I've done is try to re- radically reimagine how care needs to be structured. And, and, um, and that is to say that that 28 day treatment is, is, is not a model that, that works. I mean, I think we can say that pretty yeah. definitively. It's a starting point, but you really need to work with someone and, and create clinical continuity over a period of time that really sees them through a year, hopefully the first year of a recovery journey. So the way that we structure this in, in treatment is it, it, it's literally sort of the clinical arc of the week. So if you, if you come into care with us, you know, at the Prairie, which is our recovery center in, in Roundtop. The way that it works is Monday, the first group of the week is our hope and goals group. So we talk about hope explicitly and we set meaningful goals for the, for the treatment week. Then by Wednesday, we're doing sort of what we call carpet work, experiential work, shadow work, different things that are experiential techniques that give people corrective emotional experiences, right? And we call that the kind of transformation of the self phase of the work. And then by Friday, we're focused on integrating. We're focused on let's reflect on the week. What happened? What was the transformative experience that occurred? Did you meet your goals? In what way? And how do we integrate this for life outside of here moving forward? Right. So you, you're doing that whole process and and moving through it. I can I can see the like how that then gets cemented into the being because you're going through it, you're reflecting on it, you're having the experience, corrective experience, which you feel in your body, yes. you feel in your nervous system. I think that's yes. really important. It's not just yes. knowledge. It's 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 the it's the emotional experience, experience that mm-hmm. creates the change. And then you're reflecting on that emotional experience to say, see how that happened, which I think also creates the ability for a person to do it again because yes. then they see it and they go, oh, this is the corrective experience. I and mean, I know we were talking about earlier about how both of us kind of went into early recovery. I, I think maybe we got to see that we could create this ourselves. If that mm-hmm. we could create these healing experiences for mm-hmm. ourselves, I'm making an assumption, but yeah, no, I think that's, that's fair. You know, so, um, so we can see enough, how it works. Yeah. I had enough people, like I said, enough people sort of foundationally coming before me that they laid a pathway where that I, again, I could see, I could see a path forward, right? I was yeah. not hopeless even from, from the word go, like I came into treatment and I knew that there was a path whereby people could get better because I'd already seen it for the people that preceded me in treatment. Yeah. Right. And, and that's so important. That's why, you know, why do people with long-term recovery continue to engage in recovery communities? It's not necessarily because they're worried about drinking tomorrow or using drugs tomorrow. It's so that the person who's coming in realizes that that's possible, right? Yeah. It gives, it gives the new person hope, right? Yep. That, that 
that a different way of living is possible because you hear that they were just like me and then they did this work and now they're like this. And then I think it reconfirms it for the person who's doing that and giving that. It reconfirms it. It's like a feedback loop where once again, it's back to we create hope together and and we do that together. So I Mm -hmm. I, want to jump because I know we're kind of on a window of time here. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that other side of despair and Mm -hmm. how these play out together and how, you know, a person balances those two pieces and works through that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when we think about it in archetypal terms, this is the quintessential hero's journey, right? Going into treatment is, you know, you're, you're at this precipice of change and growth comes in the form of descending into uncertainty and into darkness. Um, and that's yeah. despair. And despair is really the birthplace of hope, right? So one of the things that, to quote from from Nietzsche, and I'm going to paraphrase it here because I'm not, but, you know, he, he says, you know, when's come the, the highest mountains I once asked? And he talks about the idea that the mountains are born out of the depths of the sea and that the evidence of this is etched on the walls of their peaks. And so, you know, basically it's from the deepest depth that the highest must come to its height. And that's sort of the transformative experience we talk about in recovery process is that somehow hitting bottom, right, going to the, the deepest place of despair allows us to have a transformative experience in which we emerge with new understanding and can actually ascend into growth and show up to our lives in a different way. So another way to say that in, in terms in kind of Jungian and even just even outside of Jung, just, 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 you know, if you thought about, you know, historical kind of tribal groups and, and their, their pathway of rites of passage, there's a ceremony of death that occurs, right? Yeah. Something does need to die. We just need to figure, you know, there's a, a therapist who I can't remember the case exactly, but it was somebody called the therapist and saying, you know, I want to kill myself. And, and the therapist said, great, why don't you come in my office and let's talk about how that needs to happen without harming your body. It's like, right, you know, I always say right I idea, wrong statement, method, right? Yeah. right? Right idea, wrong method. Something in you does need to die. We just need to figure out how to do that without harming your body. And, and there's a way to do that. And, and, and even that idea gives people hope that even in the midst of despair, where they've sort of lost sight of everything, it's like, no, 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 you're exactly in the right place. You've exhausted the possibility that this will work for you. And now you have uh, an opportunity to grow into a different, a, a, a new life and a new pathway forward. So you've exhausted what this will do for you. And we've got to shed it like an old skin and move forward. Yeah. And, and that darkness is, is scary and yeah. hard and difficult and, but like you said, having once again, someone to give you a little piece that, hey, you know, there's direction here. We have to come, like you said, like Nietzsche said, from the bottoms of the ocean yes. to the peaks. And I love that idea and that concept. And mm-hmm. oftentimes in our darkest moments, we need somebody else to be able to tell us that because we yes. can't see it ourselves. Right, right. Another great metaphor for this that a colleague of mine used to use all the time is that um, we, we do our best growing in the valleys of our lives, right? Yeah. That, that while, while the valley runs the risk of being flooded, it also provides the richest soil for the seeds of hope to take root. And that's, that's how I sort of talk about it is there's this connection between hope and despair. They're, they're in this dialectic and they, they, they are sort of two, two sides of the same coin and one informs the other and, and despair, we have hope, not in spite of despair, but actually because of it. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think having that experience when people move through that process mm-hmm. and they, they see that, mm-hmm. that 
is where they want to give it back. Right. They want to give right. it to somebody else and say, you know what? I I've seen that despair. I've been in that despair. Yeah. Yeah. And I I want to help you walk through that. Yeah. Yeah. I go back to, you know, Carl Menninger wrote a book called The Vital Balance in 1963. And in it, he talks about hope as an explicit part of treatment. And he says, our role is, as, as healers, as helpers, is to tend the flames of hope, however small they are, to tend those flames of hope and help grow them. And he talks about that being a sort of collaborative process with the patient. But one of the things that he says is he sort of goes into the historical definitions around this. And he says, there's a Greek notion of hope, which is sort of surmised in, in actually in, in Nietzsche also has another quote where he says, hope is the worst of all evils for it prolongs the torments of man. That That's sort of a Greek notion of hope. Hope is, hope is bad because it just prolongs our torment. But there's a Jewish notion of hope that Karl Menninger puts forth. And he says, the Jewish notion of hope is one born out of misadventure and disaster. That hope is, 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 is something born out of struggle. And he, and so he asked this question in, in that book, he says, are we Greeks or are we Jews? And he really advocates the, that, that practitioners of, of our approach to care, that we have to adopt this Jewish notion of hope that, that it's born out of the struggle and yeah. that we can help people make sense of their experience and their struggle. And when, when they've suffered, not for the sake of suffering, but for the sake of understanding and, and, you know, ultimately, you know, we could say salvation right then their suffering takes on meaning and it it no longer is a it, it, it no longer is a dis, uh, a factor in despair it just informs their experience so a great way to think about that contextualized is just addiction so if you look at my life addiction ravaged my family for generations and yet in and through a process of recovery and my coming to a place of despair in myself it became the basis of a transformation in which I understood my unique gift and contribution to the world. And so my hope for my life and my capacity to help people is really born out of this struggle transformed. Right. Yeah. And, and I think we all have that. We have to find that I think in the course of, of treatment. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh, Robert, I think we could talk so much more, but I know we have a hard stop here. So yeah, yeah. before we wrap up, I always like yeah. to just ask every guest like one question. Someone mm -hmm. out there is listening to this and maybe they are in that despair, in that yeah. darkness, and you could tell them one thing. What would you want them to know? I think it's that if, if you're really in that dark place, right, you're in that place of despair, Gosh, there's so many things I'd want them to know, but but I, I think know. there's there's a couple of things um, that that sort of roll together. One is that that if they can find meaning in the midst of this, then they can have a transformative experience. And I think more than anything, the first place I would start is to say you're not alone. That you know, uh, in in AEDP, uh, they talk about this idea a lot of undoing aloneness. Um, and, and I talk about that pretty explicitly in my groups that a huge part of group psychotherapy, for example, is undoing our sense of aloneness. And so if yeah. you're feeling profoundly alone, know that that's, that's sort of not the whole picture that, and, and that if you join together with other people who also have felt the depths of loneliness and despair, that you can heal and get better. Yeah. Reach, reach out for help. There are people yeah. out there that, that want to support you and, and will walk through this journey. Mm -hmm. Robert, if people want to get a hold of you, they want more information about you and your programs, how can they find you? 
you know, the best way would probably, you know, if they want to know about um, our residential programs, I would go to prairierecovery.com. And there's a great introductory video on the site that sort of talks about our approach to care in this way. Um, some of the things I've sort of alluded to, um, it speaks to that about our approach to care. And and we have on-call clinicians that answer the phones 24-7 because that's sort of the nature of substance yeah. use care is uh, people need help when they need help. And it's never at 8 a.m. on a Monday. It's usually after hours and in those dark places. So um, just know that you can pick up the phone and call and there's a call now button on the on the site. So that'd be the best way to reach out and, and also a great way to get in touch with not only our admissions folks, but, um, you know, by proxy, you can get get in touch with me that way easily. I'm, I'm pretty visible on that site as well. Awesome, Robert. And I'll yeah. put all that in the show notes at theaddictedmind.com. So you can you can get that there as well. Yeah, Robert. Thank you for coming on to the Addicted Mind podcast, sharing your wisdom, sharing your experience, and just uh, giving giving of yourself to uh, all the listeners. Well, thank thank you, thanks for having me, and thanks for doing this. Thanks for making this such a you know your your podcast has brought a lot of really important topics to light for people that may not have otherwise encountered this. So thank you. And I appreciate you having me as a guest. I look forward to, you know, like I, I think you said, we, we have a lot to talk about. So I'd love to come back and do some more. I think so. Definitely. Thank you, Robert. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind Podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com where you can get Robert's information. And if you got a lot out of this episode, share it with a friend. And don't forget, click the subscribe button in whatever podcast app you use so you can get the latest episode. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day. And I'm going to talk to you on the next episode.